PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Parker Laboratories, the world's leading manufacturer of ultrasound and electromedical contact media. Parker products include Aquasonic 100 Ultrasound Transmission Gel, the world standard for medical ultrasound. For more than 50 years, Parker Laboratories has been at the forefront of technology, providing physical therapists and their patients with the best medical ultrasound products available. Visit www.parkerlabs.com for more information. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for June 2010. This month's research reports focus on clinical prediction rules for musculoskeletal conditions, graded activity and graded exposure for low back pain, balance exercise program for patients with total knee arthroplasty, a home program of hip abductor exercises, impact of work-related pain on therapists, physical performance measures in elderly African Americans, and responsiveness of shoulder computerized adaptive test measures. This month's case reports focus on constrained physical therapist practice and implementation of measurement instruments. The June issue also includes an article in PTJ's LEAP, Linking Evidence and Practice series, Exercise for Osteoarthritis of the Knee, by Dr. Chung-Wei Lin, Deborah Taylor, Dr. Siddha Birma Zainstra, and Dr. Christopher Marr. First, critical appraisal of clinical prediction rules that aim to optimize treatment selection for musculoskeletal conditions by Tasha Stanton, Dr. Mark Hancock, Dr. Christopher Marr, and Dr. Bart Coos. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Clinical prediction rules for treatment selection in musculoskeletal conditions have become increasingly popular. The purposes of this review are, one, to critically appraise studies evaluating clinical prediction rules, and two, to consider the clinical utility and stage of development of each clinical prediction rule. Pertinent databases were searched up to April 2009. Studies aiming to develop or evaluate a clinical prediction rule for treatment response in musculoskeletal conditions were included. Two independent reviewers assessed eligibility and extracted methodological data, stage of development, and effect size information. 18 studies evaluating 15 separate clinical prediction rules were included. 14 clinical prediction rules were at the derivation stage, and all rules had been evaluated using a single-arm trial design. Therefore, it was not possible to determine whether the clinical prediction rules identify prognosis, regardless of treatment, or specifically response to treatment. The one clinical prediction rule at the validation stage investigated spinal manipulative therapy for low back pain and had been evaluated in two separate well-conducted randomized controlled trials. The first trial demonstrated a clinically meaningful effect of the clinical prediction rule for spinal manipulative therapy. The additional effect from spinal manipulative therapy in patients who were positive on the rule was 15 Oswestry disability units at week 1, and 9 units at week 4. 
The second trial showed that the clinical prediction rule did not generalize to a different clinical setting, including a modified treatment. Due to differences in methods of reporting and journal publication restraints, such as word count restrictions, some quality assessment items may have been completed in the included studies but not captured in this review. There is, at present, little evidence that clinical prediction rules can be used to predict effects of treatment for musculoskeletal conditions. The principal problem is that most studies use designs that cannot differentiate between predictors of response to treatment and general predictors of outcome. Only one clinical prediction rule has been evaluated within a randomized controlled trial designed to predict response to treatment. Validation of these rules is imperative to allow clinical application. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald. Two e-appendixes accompany this article online. Lead author Tasha Stanton is a Ph.D. candidate in the Musculoskeletal Division at the George Institute for International Health, University of Sydney, in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Next, graded activity and graded exposure for persistent nonspecific low back pain, a systematic review by Luciana Macedo, Dr. Rob Smates, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Jane Latimer, and Dr. James McCauley. Graded activity and graded exposure are increasingly being used in the management of persistent low back pain. However, their effectiveness remains poorly understood. The aim of the study was to systematically review randomized controlled trials that evaluated the effectiveness of graded activity or graded exposure for persistent low back pain. Persistent low back pain was recurrent pain or pain that lasted six weeks or more. Trials were electronically searched and rated for quality by use of the Pedro scale, which had values of 0 to 10. Randomized controlled trials of graded activity or graded exposure that included pain, disability, global perceived effect, or work status outcomes were included in the study. Outcomes were converted to a scale from 0 to 100. Trials were pooled with software used for preparing and maintaining Cochrane reviews. Results are presented as weighted mean differences. Fifteen trials with more than 1,600 patients were included. The trials had a median quality score of 6. The quality scores ranged from 3 to 9. Pooled effects from six trials, comparing graded activity with a minimal intervention or no treatment, favored graded activity. Four contrasts were statistically significant. The mean value for pain in the short term was negative 6.2. The mean value for pain in the intermediate term was negative 5.5. The mean value for disability in the short term was negative 6.5. And the mean value for disability in the intermediate term was negative 3.9. None of the following pooled effects were statistically significant. Pooled effects from six trials comparing graded activity with another form of exercise. Pooled effects from four trials comparing graded activity with graded exposure. And pooled effects from two trials comparing graded exposure with a waiting list.
A few limitations of this review include the low quality of the studies, primarily those that evaluated graded exposure, the use of various types of outcome measures, and differences in the implementation of the interventions adding to the heterogeneity of the studies. The available evidence suggests that graded activity in the short term and intermediate term is slightly more effective than a minimal intervention, but not more effective than other forms of exercise for persistent low back pain. The limited evidence suggests that graded exposure is as effective as minimal treatment or graded activity for persistent low back pain. This article has a bottom line clinical summary. Lead author Luciana Macedo is a PhD candidate at the George Institute for International Health, University of Sydney, in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Next, a balance exercise program appears to improve function for patients with total knee arthroplasty, a randomized clinical trial by Dr. Sarah Piva, Alexandra Gill, Gustavo Almeida, Dr. Anthony DeJoya III, Timothy Levison, and Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald. Patients with total knee arthroplasty have impaired balance and movement control. Exercise interventions have not targeted these impairments in this population. The purposes of this study were, one, to determine the feasibility of applying a balance exercise program in patients with total knee arthroplasty, two, to investigate whether a functional training program supplemented with a balance exercise program could improve physical function compared with a functional training program alone in a small group of individuals with total knee arthroplasty, and three, to test the methods and calculate sample size for a future randomized trial with a larger study sample. This study was a double-blind, pilot-randomized clinical trial that was conducted in the clinical laboratory of an academic center. The participants were 43 individuals, 30 women and 13 men with a mean age of 68 years who underwent total knee arthroplasty two to six months prior to the study. The interventions were six weeks, 12 sessions of a supervised functional training program or six weeks, 12 sessions of a supervised functional training program supplemented with a balance exercise program. Both interventions were followed by a four-month home exercise program. Feasibility of the balance training in people with total knee arthroplasty was supported by high exercise adherence, a relatively low dropout rate, and no adverse events. Both groups demonstrated clinically important improvements in lower extremity functional status. The degree of improvement seemed higher for gait speed, single leg stance time, and stiffness in the functional training and balance exercise group compared with the functional training group. A limitation of the study was that due to the pilot nature of the study, differences between groups did not have adequate power to show statistical significance. There is a need for conducting a larger randomized controlled trial to test the effectiveness of a functional training and balance exercise program after total knee arthroplasty. This article has a bottom line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Sarah Piva is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
Effect of a home program of hip abductor exercises on knee joint loading, strength, function, and pain in people with knee osteoarthritis. A clinical trial by Dr. Elizabeth Sled, Latif Koja, Dr. Kevin Deluzio, Dr. Sandra Olney, and Dr. Elsie Cullum. Hip abductor muscle weakness may result in impaired frontal plane pelvic control during gait, leading to greater medial compartment loading in people with knee osteoarthritis. This study investigated the effect of an eight-week home strengthening program for the hip abductor muscles on knee joint loading, strength, and function, and pain in individuals with medial knee osteoarthritis. The study design was a non-equivalent pre-test, post-test control group design. Testing was conducted in a motor performance laboratory. Forty participants with knee osteoarthritis were matched for age and sex with a control group of participants without knee osteoarthritis. Participants with knee osteoarthritis completed a home hip abductor strengthening program. Three-dimensional gait analysis was performed to obtain peak knee adduction moments in the first 50% of the stance phase. Isokinetic concentric strength of the hip abductor muscles was measured using an isokinetic dynamometer. The five times sit-to-stand test was used to evaluate functional performance. Knee pain was assessed with the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index Questionnaire. Following the intervention, the osteoarthritis group demonstrated significant improvement in hip abductor strength, but not in the knee adduction moment. Functional performance on the sit-to-stand test improved in the osteoarthritis group compared with the control group. The osteoarthritis group reported decreased knee pain after the intervention. The study had the following limitation. Gait strategies that may have affected the knee adduction moment, including lateral trunk lean, were not evaluated in this study. Hip abductor strengthening did not reduce knee joint loading, but did improve function and reduce pain in a group with medial knee osteoarthritis. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Elizabeth Sled is assistant professor in the School of Rehabilitation Therapy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Next, impact of work-related pain on physical therapists and occupational therapists by Dr. Mark Campo and Dr. Amy Dara. Physical therapists and occupational therapists experience high rates of work-related pain. Although most therapists continue to work through this pain, it interferes with work and alters therapists' work habits. However, the effects on productivity, quality of patient care, and therapists' quality of life and long-term career plans are unknown. The purpose of this study was to determine the impact of working with work-related pain on physical therapists and occupational therapists. Multiple methods were used in this study. It was primarily a phenomenological study. A phenomenological approach was used to explore the meaning of work-related pain in therapists. Focus group interviews were used as the method of data collection, and a questionnaire was used to supplement the qualitative analysis. Nineteen therapists participated in four focus groups, ranging from two to seven participants each. The participants noted substantial effects of work-related pain at work, at home, and in their career plans. 
All of the therapists were concerned about their potential clinical longevity. The professional culture complicated these effects by forcing therapists into a professional ideal. Work-related pain affects therapists in several personal and professional domains. It also may affect career plans. Strategies to reduce the risk of injury and physical loading of jobs are needed. Lead author Dr. Mark Campo is associate professor in the School of Health and Natural Sciences at Mercy College in Dobbs Ferry, New York. Next, detectable changes in physical performance measures in elderly African Americans by Dr. Kathleen Mangione, Dr. Rebecca Craik, Dr. Allison McCormick, Dr. Heather Blevins, Megan White, Dr. Eileen Sullivan Marks, and Professor James Tomlinson. African American older adults have higher rates of self-reported disability and lower physical performance scores compared with white older adults. Measures of physical performance are used to predict future morbidity and to determine the effect of exercise. Characteristics of performance measures are not known for African American older adults. The purpose of this study was to estimate the standard error of measurement and minimal detectable change for the short physical performance battery, timed up and go test time, free gait speed, fast gait speed, and six-minute walk test distance in frail African-American adults. This observational measurement study used a test-retest design. Individuals were tested two times over a one-week period. Demographic data collected included height, weight, number of medications, assistive device use, and many mental status examination scores. Participants then completed the five physical performance tests. Fifty-two participants with a mean age of 78 years completed the study. The average mini-mental status examination score was 25 points, and the average body mass index was 29.4. On average, participants took seven medications, and the majority used assistive devices. Intra-class correlation coefficients were greater than .90, except for the short physical performance battery score. For the short physical performance battery, the standard error of measurement was 1.2 points and the minimal detectable change was 2.9 points. For the timed up and go test, the standard error of measurement was 1.7 seconds and the minimal detectable change was 4 seconds. For free gait speed, the standard error of measurement was 0.08 meters per second and the minimal detectable change was 0.19 meters per second. For fast gait speed, the standard error of measurement was 0.09 meters per second, and the minimal detectable change was 0.21 meters per second. For the six-minute walk test, the standard error of measurement was 28 meters, and the minimal detectable change was 65 meters. A limitation of the study was that the entire sample was from an urban area. The standard error of measurement values were similar to previously reported values and can be used when working with African-American and white older adults. Estimates of minimal detectable change were calculated to assist in clinical interpretation. Lead author Dr. Kathleen Mangione 
is a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Arcadia University in Glenside, Pennsylvania. A computerized adaptive test for patients with shoulder impairments produced responsive measures of function. By Dr. Dennis Hart, Dr. Ying Zhi Wang, Dr. Karen Cook, and Jerome Meduski. Computerized adaptive tests, or CATs, promise efficient outcomes data collection with little loss of measurement precision. The shoulder computerized adaptive test has not been assessed for administrative efficiency, nor have prospective studies been completed to evaluate the sensitivity to change or the responsiveness of CAT-based functional status measures. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the efficiency and responsiveness of the shoulder computerized adaptive test. This was a secondary analysis of prospectively collected data. Data were analyzed from patients with shoulder impairments who received outpatient rehabilitation in 518 clinics in 30 U.S. states. Over the testing time, about 31,000 patients completed the shoulder computerized adaptive test at intake. Of these, almost 14,000 completed the computerized adaptive test at discharge, a 45% completion rate. The efficiency of routine computerized adaptive test administration was evaluated, and the sensitivity to change and responsiveness of the CAT-based functional status measures were assessed. On average, patients took about 1.5 minutes to answer six computerized adaptive test items, which produced precise estimates of the CAT-based functional status measures that adequately covered the content range, and had negligible floor effects and minimal ceiling effects. 94% of the patients had CAT-based functional status scores between 20 and 80. Of patients with both intake and discharge data, 79% had CAT-based functional status change scores greater than minimal detectable change, and 76% had changes greater than minimal clinically important improvement. Because this study was a secondary analysis, the results may have been affected by patient selection bias. Future studies would benefit from more complete data. The results indicate the shoulder computerized adaptive test was efficient and support the precision, sensitivity, and responsiveness of the CAT-based functional status measures. Lead author Dr. Dennis Hart is Director of Consulting and Research at Focus on Therapeutic Outcomes, Inc., in Knoxville, Tennessee. Next, constrained physical therapist practice, an ethical case analysis of recommending discharge placement from the acute care setting by Dr. Ernest Nellette. Constrained practice is routinely encountered by physical therapists and may limit the physical therapist's primary moral responsibility, which is to help the patient to become well again. Ethical practice under such conditions requires a certain moral character of the practitioner. The purposes of this article are, one, to provide an ethical analysis of a typical patient case of constrained clinical practice, two, to discuss the moral implications of constrained clinical practice, and three, to identify key moral principles and virtues fostering ethical physical therapist practice. 
The case represents a common scenario of discharge planning in acute care health facilities in the northeastern United States. An applied ethics approach was used for case analysis. The decision following analysis of the dilemma was to provide the needed care to the patient as required by compassion, professional ethical standards, and organizational mission. Constrained clinical practice creates a moral dilemma for physical therapists. Being responsive to the patient's needs moves the physical therapist's practice toward the professional ideal of helping vulnerable patients become well again. Meeting the patient's needs is a professional requirement of the physical therapist as moral agent. Acting otherwise requires that an alternative position be ethically justified based on systematic analysis of a particular case. Skepticism of status quo practices is required to modify conventional individual, organizational, and societal practices toward meeting the patient's best interest. This article will be the subject of a discussion podcast. Dr. Ernest Nallette is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Ithaca College in Rochester, New York. Last this month, Implementation of Measurement Instruments in Physical Therapist Practice Development of a Tailored Strategy by J.G. Anita Stevens and Dr. Anna Buskins. The use of measurement instruments has become a major issue in physical therapy, but their use in daily practice is infrequent. The aims of this case report were to develop and evaluate a plan for the systematic implementation of two measurement instruments frequently recommended in Dutch physical therapy clinical guidelines the patient-specific complaints instrument, and the six-minute walk test. A systematic implementation plan was used, starting with a problem analysis of aspects of physical therapist practice, a literature search, structured interviews, and sounding board meetings were used to identify barriers and facilitators. Based on these factors, various strategies were developed through the use of a planning model for the process of change. Barriers and facilitators were revealed in various domains. Physical therapists' competence and attitude, organization, patients, and measurement instruments. The strategies developed were adjustment of the measurement instruments, a self-analysis list, and an education module. Pilot testing and evaluation of the implementation plan were undertaken. The strategies developed were applicable to physical therapist practice. Self-analysis, education, and attention to the practice organization made the physical therapists aware of their actual behavior, increased their knowledge, and improved their attitudes toward and their use of measurement instruments. The use of a planning model made it possible to tailor multifaceted strategies toward various domains and phases of behavioral change. The strategies will be further developed in programs of the Royal Dutch Society for Physical Therapy. Future studies should examine the use of measurement instruments as an integrated part of the process of clinical reasoning. The focus of future studies should be directed not only toward physical therapists, but also toward the practice organization and professional associations. Lead author J.G. Anita Stevens is researcher and teacher at the Center of Research Autonomy and Participation of People with Chronic Illnesses in the Department of Physiotherapy at Zuid University in Haarlem, the Netherlands. 
Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.